0: Good morning to everyone. Just a couple of quick uh, announcements. Uh, the first, we recently completed a foundations course. That's our uh, members course here at Grace Community Church. And I had planned to announce uh, some new members this morning, but I don't have all the profiles in yet. So I know some new members were expecting to hear their names this morning. But I'm not going to say your name. It will be next Sunday or maybe even the Sunday after as I wait to get in all the rest of the the profiles. There you go. That's announcement number one. (laughs) Announcement number two. A month or so ago, I uh, put a couple of names before uh, members here at Grace Community Church as we were seeking to add uh, deacons here. We had added a couple of elders previous month and now a couple of deacons. And so I want to confirm Uh, Those two brothers to the church this morning, Ron Russell and Arthur Lane, I'm going to ask them just to stand quickly, tip their hats if they're wearing one, just so that you know you can put faces, in case you don't know who Arthur is here in the front, Ron over there. Thanks, Arthur and Ron, appreciate it. And so they'll be joining with Keith and working together as deacons here at Grace Community Church, and we are excited for that and extremely thankful for what the Lord is doing in and through them among us. With that said, I'm going to ask you now to turn with me to the best chapter in the Bible. Uh, that's bold. Not my statement, actually. I, I read that in a, in a commentary a, a couple of months ago. And uh, this commentator, who shall remain nameless, in his estimation, uh, Romans chapter 8 is the best chapter in the Bible. Now, is it really the best chapter in the Bible? Yes. Yeah, I lean that way, Norm. I'm with you. And few of us would disagree with Norm. Romans 8 is indeed uh, the best chapter in the Bible, if not the best. If not the best, I mean, you have John 17, Psalm 23, sure, sure. Uh, Romans 8 is certainly among the best. Romans chapter 8. And this is going to be our focus for the next two or three months. I am going to squeeze as much out of it as I possibly can. And I want to begin uh, this morning just for a few moments, ten minutes I hope, that's my goal. And use the PowerPoint and give you, impress upon you, drive home three things. I want you to keep in mind three truths that I want to place in the forefront of your minds. I'm asking you to keep them there as we journey through this chapter together. Here is the first truth. Truth number one. I want you to remember this. I want you to recall it. I want you to refer to it frequently. The glory of the triune God, Paul is Trinitarian. He speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit throughout this epistle. He speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in particular, in this chapter. Again, Romans chapter 8. We can distill, I'm not going to expound the doctrine of the Trinity this morning, but I am going to suggest that we can distill this doctrine in three statements. Three statements. Statement number one is this The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. That is statement number one. These three persons are distinct. If you ever use or have ever heard someone speak of the three persons of the Trinity in terms of manifestations, Or representations, stop it, and tell them to stop it. It is sub-Trinitarian. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not simply three manifestations or representations of the one God. They are three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. That's the first statement. The second statement is this. There is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Spirit is God. Here we are speaking of one being. One essence. One substance. And it leads, obviously, to the third statement, which is as follows. God is tri, T-R-I, une, U-N-E. We put them together and we have triune. They're actually Latin terms. Tri means three. Une means one. Therefore, our God is triune. Three in one. Three distinct persons who are but one being. You proclaimed it, whether you realize it or not. When you were baptized, you proclaimed it. You were baptized in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want us to focus on the glory of the triune God. In particular, it's disappeared. I want us to keep three truths in view. Did I do that, Ricky? It's quite possible. We've got a new PowerPoint thingamajig is the technical term here. And uh, there we are. Nope. Three truths I want you to keep in mind. Maybe they'll come up in a moment here. The first is this, that the Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit know each other. Did you catch that? Know each other, love each other, and rejoice in each other in eternity. Let me repeat it. The Father, the Son, there we have it. These three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, know each other, love each other, and rejoice in each other, in eternity, Now build on it. Here's the second truth. This knowing, loving, and rejoicing within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in eternity, is God's glory. That is God's glory. God's glory is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit know each other, love each other, and rejoice in each other. And now here is the wonder of wonders. God extends his glory to us. And so by the time we arrive at the end of chapter 8, that is verse 39, I want you to be convinced that a personal and relational God invites you to fellowship with him in his love, in his knowledge, and in his joy. We are Trinitarians we fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want us to grasp that by the time we arrive at the end of chapter 8. The second truth I want us to focus on is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in particular. You read Romans chapter 8 and you read it carefully, you are going to find 21 references to the Holy Spirit. His name is found, Holy Spirit or just Spirit is found 21 times in the chapter. Do you know what that means? It means that this chapter contains more references to the Holy Spirit than any other chapter in the Bible. Do you know what that means? This is the chapter of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that means? We better know something about the Holy Spirit, who He is and the work of the Holy Spirit by the time we arrive at the end of this chapter. Here are some things I want us to focus on. What it means, walking by the Spirit. First four verses. Living by the Spirit. Killing or mortifying is the big term. By the Spirit. Crying. Not so much weeping as crying out. Crying by the Spirit, groaning, moaning by the Spirit, praying by the Spirit, and triumphing by the Spirit. 21 explicit references to the Holy Spirit in this chapter. It is the chapter of the Spirit. And so I pray that when we arrive at the end of the 39th verse, we will understand something of what it means to walk in the newness of the life of the Holy Spirit. And now the third truth I want us to focus on, I want you to never forget, lose sight of, as we make our way through this long chapter, again, 39 verses, is the efficacy, the efficacy, the power of the gospel. And here's a quote from Derek Thomas. He writes... This chapter is a description of the Christian's journey from death to life, that is spiritual death to spiritual life, from justification to glorification, from trial and suffering to the peace and tranquility of the new heaven and new earth. Listen to the following. This is the chapter you want when collapsing under the burden of sin. This is it. This is the one. This is the chapter you want when melting in the fire of affliction. This is the chapter you want when bearing the weight of sorrow. This is the chapter you want when expiring upon your deathbed. It is magnificent from beginning to end. By verse 39, I want you to be convinced that you would be immeasurably poorer without this chapter. The efficacy of the gospel. So my simple prayer as we begin today And we're at it for two or three months. My simple prayer is that it might do you some good. Not very profound, I know, but that's it. That's my prayer. I told you it was going to be simple. My prayer is that this chapter will do you some good. And if by the time we've arrived at the end of it, it has done you some good, and in particular, you've seen something of the glory of God triune, something of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and something of the efficacy of the gospel, I will be a happy pastor. Not that I'm unhappy now, but I'll be even happier than I am now. I know that's difficult to imagine, but I could be happier than I am now. And I will be a happy pastor if by the end of this chapter, by the Spirit of God, it has done you some good. You can take that away, Ricky. We are finished with the technology, the PowerPoint. We're going to embark now on our study, a good place to begin, the very first verse, And I encourage you to follow along as I read the first four verses in actual fact. Again, Romans chapter 8, in case you missed it somehow, we're in Romans 8, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's the question. How can you be certain God will not condemn you? That's a great question. How can I, how can we be absolutely certain, absolutely certain that God will not condemn us? As we listen closely to what people are saying around us in our day, uh, we discover Quickly, that many people, I dare say most people, simply try to avoid the question. They refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of the question. Again, the question is this, how can you, sitting there right now, how can you be certain, absolutely sure, that God will not condemn you? Some people avoid the question by getting rid of the judge. rather rather convenient, isn't it? They get just dismiss the question by dismissing the judge. You know, this is horrific in one sense to mention this, but I I was thinking on this just a couple of weeks ago. You know, it has been 20 years. I think it was 1995 since that Oklahoma bombing. Do you remember that? I'm sure anybody at any age, we remember that. Timothy McVeigh, right? 20 years ago, 1995. Hard to believe. And my intention isn't to upset anyone or stir up those pains and aches thinking back on that horrific incident in Oklahoma City. But uh, Timothy McVeigh, before he was executed, having been tried and condemned, executed, he uttered his final words, his final statement, and he quoted W.E. Henley's poem, Invictus. I won't quote the poem for its entirety for you, but here's how it ends. Listen closely and listen for the biblical allusions. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Silly bravado from a dying man. And yet an unbelievably common sentiment in our day. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. My friend, you most certainly are not. You are not. You are but putty in the hands of an almighty God in whose presence you already stand condemned. You've already been tried. And you have already been found wanting. To try to avoid the question by dismissing the judge is grand self-delusion. There are others who would not be so bold as to avoid the question by dismissing the judge, but they would be rather presumptuous in dismissing the question by getting rid of the law. They know they can't get rid of the judge. There is a God. They believe that. But what they do is the next best thing. They get rid of his law, or they rewrite his law. And so Gord, nobody here. Gord, a neighbor of mine back in Peterborough, Ontario, for five, six years, big man, loud man. He loved to chat. I don't like to chat, so we got along really well. He talked, I listened. Once in a while, as we sip coffee on his back porch, I I can think of two clear instances in which I looked George with fear and trembling in his face, in, in his eyes, and I asked him, Gord, you're getting on. What's next? I was referring to death. I was making reference to life after death. Gord, what's next? He never failed. His answer was always the same. I've done okay. I'll be all right. He kind of winked at me. Half grin on his face. I'll be okay. I've done all right. You see, Gord had rewritten God's law to suit himself. And Gord basically thought in terms of four or five categories, I I did well at work, I looked after my family, raised my kids, helped my neighbor. Somehow that is going to tilt the scales in my favor. And by rewriting the law and ignoring God's law, essentially, what was he doing? He was sidestepping the question. How can you be absolutely certain that God will not condemn you? Very common. You've been around for any length of time. You know it's true as well as I do. People will avoid the question. And they will avoid it either by getting rid of the judge or they will avoid it by getting rid of the law. What is the only answer to the question? Paul gives us the answer in the text we've just written. And he basically sums it up in three truths. That the answer of answers, the answer to this question, how can I right here, right now, be absolutely certain God will not condemn me? I must grasp these three truths. Here we go. Truth number one, there is a glorious condition. A glorious condition. Look at what Paul says in the first two verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, that is because, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The starting point, you need to come to grips. We must come to grips with the term condemnation. What is Paul saying? He is simply referring to the fact that the trial has already taken place. Far too many people, I pray no one here today, but I'm not naive, and I know there certainly are people here today. They think of the trial in terms of something future yet to happen. No, 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 no. The trial has already taken place. The evidence has already been presented. We have already been found sorely wanting. The verdict has already been read, guilty. And the sentence has already been passed, condemnation. We understand those concepts, don't we? I mean, we we witnessed it from arm's length here, Stephenville, last month. We had that national, I think it probably made international news, that trial going on there, right? didn't take too long, a couple of weeks, but apparently shut down half the city. There you go. What you haven't cost, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But we understand there was a trial, right? Evidence presented. The verdict came in. Guilty. And the sentence was passed. Condemned to life. You must grasp this. In God's tribunal, the trial has already taken place. And the sentence has already been passed. Condemnation. All the unbeliever is waiting for is what? The sentence to be carried out. Oh, my friend, if you're not a believer, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, do you understand how precarious, how precarious your condition is at this very moment? Oh, so many people have it wrong. They think, I'm making my way to God's tribunal. And what I do along the way will determine it. No, 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 my friend. It has already taken place. You're guilty. And you've been condemned. And all you are waiting for is the sentence to be carried out. And here is the sentence in all of its stark horror from the lips of the meek shepherd himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Depart from me into an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the execution of the sentence. It implies two things. Depart from me into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It implies two things. First of all, it implies a horrible loss, doesn't it? Depart from me. It is the loss of God. It is the complete absence of God. And it implies not only this horrific, horrible loss, but a terrible gain. Depart from me into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice three things there. It is a fire, which implies what? Unspeakable torment. It is eternal. You don't need to be a Bible scholar to figure this one out. Eternal means what? It does not end. And it is a place where you will have company. It was prepared beforehand for the devil and his angels. That is the carrying out. That is the execution of the sentence that has already been passed. Condemnation. But what is Paul's point in this verse? A glorious condition. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? The law of the spirit of life faith, through faith, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. After 26, 27, almost 30 years, certainly, in prison, uh, Nelson Mandela, he emerged from prison, didn't he? And as he emerged from those three decades of, uh, of imprisonment, some of the early years in solitary confinement... <laughs> he uttered the following statement as he, as, he, as he literally walked out of his cell. As I finally walked through those gates, I felt, even at the age of 71, that my life was beginning anew. That's what Paul's saying in this verse. That's what he's saying. That when we repent of our sin and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we become one with Him, realizing, therefore... Christ has borne the penalty for our sin. That's what he's saying in the second verse. We experience what? Freedom in Christ Jesus. The breath, the fresh air of freedom. Freedom from the wrath of God. Freedom from the curse of the law. Freedom from the clutches of Satan. Freedom from the penalty and ultimately the power of sin. This is a glorious condition. But Paul emphasizes a second truth in this text, a glorious salvation. He wants to give more specifics as to how exactly this glorious condition was brought about. This glorious condition whereby as a Christian, someone who believes, who rests in the finished work, the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, how that verdict was changed from innocent to justified. How that sentence was changed from eternal death to eternal life. How it was changed from hell to heaven. How my condition was changed from condemnation to justification. He wants us to understand that the glorious condition rests on a glorious salvation. And so what does he say in the third verse? For. So there's a connection. God has done. We've entered into the realm. We have entered into the realm of something that was beyond our performance. That's clear, right? That's self-evident. We're entering into territory here where where it has nothing to do with us. We've moved beyond our ability. We've moved beyond our works. Any merit or, or, or idea of earning favor in God's sight. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Oh, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned. Notice it's the same word that we had back in the first verse. He condemned, that is he punished sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I know biblical language gets tricky at times. It actually gets tricky a lot of times. That word flesh is a little tricky, isn't it? Uh, Go with me. Turn back. Just flip back a few pages. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. We need to understand this. We can never lose sight of it. Months ago, we were in the depths here in the first three chapters of Romans, weren't we? Where Paul gives us a very black and white picture of our sin. And forces us to take stock and reckon with who and what we are exactly in God's sight. And, and it gets no more startling than what we find beginning in verse 10 of Romans 3. And look at that blank, blanket statement that Paul throws out there. Again, verse 10 of Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. You See, the, the, the trial has already taken place. And here is the verdict. None is righteous, no, not one. Why? What's the problem? We're sinful in what we think. No one understands. We're sinful in what we want. No one seeks for God. We're sinful in what we choose. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We're guilty in what we say. Their throat is an open grave. Skip down to verse 15. We're guilty in what we do. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And finally in verse 18, we're guilty in terms of what we fear. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Therefore, every mouth is closed in God's tribunal. My friend, you must reckon with it. You must come to grips with with it. That is you. That is me. That is the flesh. It doesn't matter how much good you think you've done in this life. My neighbor, (laughs) Gord. I've done pretty good. I'll be okay. And I felt if I was in my bed, I was about four hundred pounds. There's no way I could have shaken him, but I wanted to shake him sometimes. No, 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 no. You do not understand that even these good things you think you do are corrupt in the sight of God, because the well is poison. The well itself, the heart from which our actions spring, even whether they be good or evil in and of themselves, outside of Christ in the flesh, the motive is never right. And therefore, even the good things we do are but filthy rags in the sight of God as unbelievers. That's what Paul is saying here back in Romans 8. He's saying, Look, you've got the law, and the law tells us to behave, right? In a nutshell. The law tells us to what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The law tells you to love your neighbor as yourself. You want to be a little more precise? Well, then you go to the Ten Commandments. And you understand the first commandment begins with what? I should not have any other gods before the one true God. It ends with what? I'm not supposed to covet. And you've got everything in between. So we understand the law. We get it. Well, what's Paul's point? His point is this. Look, the law is powerless. The law couldn't solve your problem. Obeying the law can't solve your problem. Why? The law is weakened by the flesh. You can't do it, even when you think you're doing it. What you think is good is actually detestable in the sight of God because again the fount, the fountain is poisoned. The well is corrupt. And whatever springs from it is unacceptable in the sight of God. Your condition is completely helpless. What's Paul's point? Praise God. Why? Because he has done what the law could never do. What has he done? Two things he emphasizes in the rest of the third verse. Here we go. Number one. God sent his son in the likeness of... Of sinful flesh. That is Christ's. Obviously. Incarnation. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity. Who is not the Father. Nor is he the Spirit. He is a distinct person. In submission to his Father. took the form of our humanity body and soul, walked on this earth. He came, says Paul, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That does not mean that he himself was sinful. He knew no sin. He never even committed a sin. He never even spoke a sinful word. When Paul says that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he means simply this, that the Lord Jesus assumed to himself a humanity with all the negative effects of the fall upon it. Hunger, pain, and sorrow, and thirst. Oh, what a tremendous encouragement that is. It's a tremendous encouragement because it means, it's a pledge really to us. That Christ in his humanity empathizes with our frailties. It's an encouragement because it is a pattern for us. Christ shows us how to obey God and conquer Satan. It is an encouragement because it is a promise to us. Here we go. The Lord Jesus Christ, as a man, has taken possession of heaven itself. And as a man, flesh sits at the right hand of God. That is a promise. There's a promise of a coming resurrection. There's a promise that we will indeed inherit all that has been promised to us, held out to us. And fourthly, it is a payment. Christ's coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, whereby He does what the law could never do. He fulfills its duty, because we couldn't do it. Flesh, we were corrupt. He fulfills its duty. He obeys it perfectly. And he fulfills its penalty when he was condemned upon Calvary's cross. That's Paul's point. Follow it right through, the start of verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the first thing. The second thing is this he sent his own son for sin, that's his passion. And what was the result of his atoning sacrifice, his substitutionary sacrifice? Look at the very last statement in the third verse. He, that is God, condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Christ's flesh, a man as he hung upon Calvary's cross bearing our sin bearing the weight of God's wrath bearing that punishment and condemnation that was due to us that is why this glorious salvation resting upon it is what? a glorious condition there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus why? because of a glorious salvation but Paul doesn't stop there. He makes a third point. As we come into the fourth verse, and here it is a glorious renovation. A glorious renovation. In order. And so yes, Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. Yes, the Father punishing the Son in my place upon Calvary's cross. Freedom from condemnation. Justification. Yes, the verdict is changed from guilty to justified. The sentence is changed, yes, from from death, eternal death to eternal life. But it's more than that. Not only does He deal with the penalty of my sin, but He deals with the power of my sin, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be be fulfilled, not for us, folks, in us. That's sanctification. In us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What are you saying, Steve? Are you saying I can obey the law? That's what that seems to suggest, right? That now in Christ, part of the fruit of his substitutionary work on my behalf is that the righteous requirement, that is obedience of the law, might now be fulfilled in me as I seek by his help to walk according to the Spirit. Can I really obey? Can I really fulfill the law as a covenant of works? Most certainly not. Absolutely not as a covenant of works. There's no question of merit here. As a rule of life? Yes. Yes. Perfectly? Definitely not. But in sincerity? Yes. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. That is a glorious renovation. And that is the biblical answer in a nutshell to this burning question. How can I be absolutely certain that God will not condemn me? Here's the answer. A glorious condition, a glorious salvation, and a glorious renovation. Let me get personal. I hadn't been personal to this point. If you thought I had been, you're mistaken. Now I'm going to get personal. Now I'm going to get in your pew, your chair. Are you an unbeliever? Outside of Christ. If so, I want you to taste the sweetness of this single statement. I want you to taste it. We, we used this earlier this morning in our adult Bible class. I want you to taste the sweetness of this single statement. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are an unbeliever, do you understand who you are right now at this very moment in the sight of a holy God? Do you remember, do you understand that the jury is not out? You're not still waiting for the verdict. The verdict has been passed. The sentence has been declared. You are simply waiting for this sentence to be carried out, executed. Executed. My friend, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What, what, what are you possibly going to say when you stand before a holy God covered in your sin, covered in your transgression, covered in your rebellion, and covered in your guilt? Oh, I pray this is the day you will understand and you will taste of the sweetness of this truth. There is therefore now no condemnation. For who? For a very, very select group. It's not for everyone. It is for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning what? It is for those who have repented of their sin. And they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. That's my message for the unbeliever. Are you a believer? Most gathered here undoubtedly praise God. Here's what I want of you. It's going to sound sound awfully familiar. I want you to taste the sweetness of this single statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even as a believer... I want you to taste that, and I want you to taste it each and every day. If your mind is troubled, you need to think on this statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The cost of college, the cost of health care, the cost of senior care, all rising. House values, pension funds, job openings, all shrinking. Divine institutions such as marriage under attack. Every tragedy broadcast over and over and over again on the television and the internet. 60% of Americans claiming today that the American dream is dying, if not already dead. Such negativity. Such discouragement, such depression, even for the people of God, as we look out and look around and take a survey and listen to all these multiple voices. I encourage you, turn it out. Tune it out and turn it off. And think on this glorious truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get up above it all. And understand what it means to be a child of God. No amen. What it means to have God as our Father. God. Almighty God on our side. What it means to have this hope of this promised kingdom. What it is to know the glory of sins forgiven, peace of conscience, the assurance of eternal life, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the saints. Oh, if your thoughts are troubled, your mind is troubled, dwell on these things. Think on the sweetness of this single statement. If your heart is troubled, I want you to think on this. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, please hear this. Please, 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 please hear this. You cannot change certain circumstances in life. Face it and embrace it. You cannot and I cannot. We cannot change certain circumstances in life. We just can't do it. But we can change. How we respond to them. Yes you can. Yes you can. We can change how we respond to them. And how we respond must be shaped by the sweetness of this truth. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Here is comfort for bearing sorrow. Here is strength for enduring difficulty. Here is trust for facing uncertainty. And here is peace for overcoming anxiety. (coughs) I gave an illustration earlier this morning. It was simply this, of a well-worn path. And I spoke of my childhood, indulge me for a moment, five years of age, living up there in Ontario, subdivision right next to our subdivision, woods, and a ravine through these woods. Great place to grow up as a child, as a boy especially. And the boys and some girls from the neighborhood, there we would go, bikes through those woods, tag, hide and seek, whatever, constantly. This was the area we played in, our turf, our territory. And you can imagine as we ran through those woods, bike through those woods, the well-worn tracks, the well-worn paths, even when covered with the winter's snows, when the the spring finally came and the grass would try to grow up and the weeds would emerge and branches would begin to bow over the paths, we would just break it all, right? And wear those paths down again. My point is simply this. Your mind is just like that path. You have a well-worn path in your mind. The problem is this. For far too many of us, it's filled with negative things. For far too many of us, we dwell on the wrong things. And how we need a well-worn, trodden path, beaten down. One we go to time and time and time again. And here it is encapsulated in this sweet truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me speak to one more person. Here we go, maybe a couple. If your conscience is troubled, you need to think on this great truth. There is, now, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If your conscience is troubled, you need to think on this. The question I began with, how can I be absolutely certain that God won't condemn me? A glorious condition, a glorious salvation, a glorious renovation. I am. I, you know, I'm very, very confident about meeting God. Very confident about meeting God. Do you know why? I tenaciously believe in the all-sufficiency of Christ. Not my sufficiency. Oh, heaven help me indeed. Not anything I've ever done or performed or ever will. But I am very confident... Of meeting God and standing before him. Why? Because I'm very confident in my big brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am very confident in the trail he has blazed. I am very confident in the fact that he has fulfilled the duty of the law, what I could never do. And he has paid the penalty of the law, what I could never, ever do. You know, we... um, Sometimes on a Sunday afternoon, some of us—those are really bold—we go down to the park, right, and we play ultimate frisbee or soccer. For for me, it's been a downward spiral of late. I know the past week, just the past year, really, but we won't go there. Well, there we are out playing, and I can remember a couple of instances way in the past now, not recently, but certainly in the past. We're saying soccer, one team is up three nothing, four nothing, five nothing, six two, and you've been playing for an hour. And then you know what happens. Somebody all of a sudden calls out what? Next goal wins. Right? Next goal wins. If you're on the losing team, what is that? Oh, that is just glorious. If you're on the losing team, it means that the hour, the previous hour, no longer has any bearing. You're back to 0-0, and you have a fresh start. Christian, do you understand that's what happens every morning? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He is prepared to declare what? Next goal wins. Every morning, every moment of every day. Why? Because of this solidity of this unchanging reality that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, how that speaks to a troubled mind. How that speaks to a troubled heart. And how that speaks to a troubled conscience. Hear it, it, please, summed up. The Son of God became a man. That's marvelous in and of itself. The Son of God became a man in the likeness of sinful flesh. That too is marvelous. He did so for our justification. That is to restore God's favor. He did so for our sanctification. That is to renew God's image in us. And as a result, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you guess what hymn we're going to end with in a few moments? Can you guess? Here it is. One of the stanzas. Charles Wesley. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus. And all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. Bold. That's confidence. Bold. I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Our Father, we pray that you'd be well pleased to work in our midst this morning. We pray that by your spirit, you'd be well pleased to work in the life of any unbeliever. Prick their conscience deep. May they not leave here without a wounded heart that can only be healed by the gospel. We pray that you would show them just how willing you are to forgive all who come to the Lord Jesus, all who place their faith in him, all who receive him as their Lord and Savior. And for your children, many of them, most of us here gathered in this room, we pray that as we have reflected and meditated yet again upon the glories of the gospel, that our hearts might be encouraged, uh, encouraged to worship you encouraged to serve you, encouraged to obey you. May we find great comfort and assurance in this glorious truth that there is no condemnation in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.